was delaying you. I was just reading an interview with you, um, which was very useful because it means we can talk about Graham Potter, unless you can't. Yes, no, no. Um, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of Graham. Yeah, and I bet the English FA are as well. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine he's going to be an England manager anytime soon. I, I know a lot of people have linked, but I just don't see it kind of being his thing. But um, mm. yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, let's start there. So the latest in the factory line of what I'm calling the Excel recording of football literature. Do you know, Chris Evans, that Excel only put out five or six records a year and they're always top, top, top quality? Right. Yeah. So that's what Matt Lowing and Bloomsbury Sport do. And you are thus. You're kind of the XX of football literature. Your book, How to Win the World Cup, Secrets and Insights from International Football's Top Managers, has been out for a few weeks now. Has it been well received? It has, yeah. Everyone who's, who's read it has, has enjoyed it. Although it's been a bit of a funny one because um, I think we launched it, but I think a lot of the promo is, is kind of happening now and into October and ahead of the World Cup. So, um, yeah, it's, it's good. It's exciting. Um, and, yeah, it's just about kind of spreading the word at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there are, as you know, because you edit the setpieces.com, there are so many football memoirs and books. Ian Holloway's got a second memoir. Michael Richards has obviously got a memoir out. Alex Scott's book comes out as we're talking on September the 28th tomorrow. Have you come across Alex in your work? I haven't, no. No, no, she's not someone that I've, I've spoken to. So, um, but I know there's been a lot of... Uh... A lot of promo around her stuff. I mean, I, I wish I had her profile to, uh, to yeah. help me with this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's enormous. There was a big interview in The Times last Saturday. The book is called How Not to Be Strong. Uh, and it's a, a memoir, but also just about the rise in importance in women's football. Um, is that something the set pieces are going to look at in advance of the World Cup that England are not going to win next year in Australia and New Zealand? I mean, it's not something, I mean, uh, the, the focus for this World Cup will probably be the men's World Cup. And we've got a few things kind of planned for that. We have done things on, on women's football in the past and so probably will do again. Yep, excellent. And setpieces.com is the place to go. It, the Vox in the Box series is priceless. I think that was one of the great ideas, obviously, started by your predecessor, whose name we're not going to mention. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to mention Ian McIntosh. And is it... Ian, Ian, we, I mean, it was his... His baby, basically, and yeah, he, he then moved on to the Muddy Knees Media, sold that to the Athletic, and um, yeah, he's now head of audio there. So he's he's uh, he's doing well for himself, as it should be, because he was the master of football manager. And you, did you, were you in charge of this football manager twenty? You call the shots series. I was, yes, yeah. We did a couple of things just after we kind of re rebooted. That was one of them. We also did something um, just after the lockdown began with coaches from several professional clubs as well, which didn't go well for me to be honest. But um, yeah, there was there's a few things we tried to do that's a little bit different for it. I think it really. I mean, I I'm one of many people. I think I I wasn't addicted to Football Manager, but it did. It was an unhealthy obsession. Have you thus come across Cherno Samba in real life yet? I, I haven't. I know Ian got him uh, got him involved on uh, one of his championship manager series that he did. So I think, I mean, Ian, Ian seems to be holding Cherno Samba, Samba up. He'll never be forgotten, will he? No, it's it's like one of those names who will reverberate, like Kenny Bakir-Sioglu. These are the names that, it's a Proustian rush. That maybe someone will write a play about football manager because it, it's so fascinating and that's what we all do now we all think that we can manage a football team but it's jolly hard 
as you evidence in this book, How to Win the World Cup, Secrets and Insights from International Football's Top Managers. Um, have you sent a copy to Gareth Southgate? I haven't, I haven't. I did try to get him in into the, um, the book. I spoke to him a couple of times. Well, I spoke to the England's press office a couple of times. Um, but yeah, it wasn't something he was, he was keen to do. I would suspect it's probably because if he does manage to win the World Cup, his own book will be, uh, you be worth bet. quite a lot of money. So. That will be out in January. I mean, the, the speed at which a book came out um, after the World Cup 2018, um, and it's since which England don't win. Does it matter that we haven't won in the Nations League? I don't think it does. Um, I mean, there is a, a thread that kind of goes through of adversity, and actually Southgate himself kind of mentioned it the other day, and, and actually that sort of reaction after Germany went 2-0 up I think was actually quite telling because it showed that the players were reacting to adversity and you know they'd gone into it this was looking like another defeat it was going to be a sick game without a win obviously the the equaliser came late on to do that but yeah that I I think it matters to a point that not scoring a lot is is not it's, it's not ideal for any side but actually international football is a lot more pragmatic and if you look at the World Cup winners in the past they're, they're all quite or well, the vast majority um, over recent decades have been pretty pragmatic so actually things probably aren't as bad as they we judge based on kind of what we're used to seeing in the club games I, I think that it's, it's quite a different a different way of playing in a very different style that I think is missed by quite a lot of people. Henry Winter, God bless Henry Winter, who even left the birth of his child so, so as to keep up his streak of watching England. I think it's about 300 now. He's very keen that England play in a swashbuckling style. But you win a World Cup by edging through, you, as happened in 2018. The group games are a stage or a hurdle. The knockout games are a hurdle. Uh, unfortunately, we came up cropper against Croatia. But you say in this book, and there's there's chat with Zlatko Dalic, you make a brilliant point that is useful going into this World Cup uh, about failure. Failure in one tournament means that in the next tournament that you're more likely to overcome the same obstacle. Yes, I mean, in theory, England have got the perfect grounding for it. And you learn from that. And Didier Deschamps has spoken about that previously as well. I think he, he mentioned that in the press conference like immediately after France had won um, the World Cup last time out and he said you know if we hadn't lost the Euro 2016 final we wouldn't have been here having won the World Cup final Roberto Martinez has said something along those lines so Gertrude you know Jürgen you, Löw said something similar with, with Germany that they'd kind of lost two semi-finals they'd lost a Euro 2008 final to Spain and then they cracked it you know, go further back and there seems to be a, a, a lot of countries seem to do that I mean obviously there are countries who become kind of like nearly men and they miss out closely time and time again. But it, I, I don't think losing is always the the worst thing. And actually the best idea if you do lose seems to be not to throw the baby out of the bathwater and change everything and, and just kind of keep the faith that there is there is a progression that's that's going on. I think the problem with England at the moment is that perhaps that progression in one way or another looks like it might have been stunted a little bit. But like I said before, it, it depends how much it's been stunted of how much of a big deal that is. And I don't think we're we're really going to find that out until we kind of get to Qatar, just because it's a very funny tournament this time. But yeah. the game the other night against Germany would suggest that actually England aren't a million miles off what a Germany are doing. You know, actually you look at what some of the other big nations are. Belgium didn't win their group. France didn't win their group. You know, Germany, actually, they, they came third in in, yeah, in England's group. So yeah. 
there's there's a lot of big nations who are not performing and I know everyone's kind of talking up Brazil and Argentina but there's a reality that actually because the way the Nations League has come that Brazil and Argentina have got these big long and beaten runs but actually they've not played many European nations and recent history suggests that the power has moved to European nations and that's not to kind of write off what Brazil and Argentina are doing but I don't think they're as much of dead certs to be challenges as, as some people have you believe. Well, I will watch that closely because I've been saying for years now that because of the climate, it's more likely that a South American team will win. But all things being equal, the players and the coaching, especially generally I'm talking about in Europe, is so much better because that's where the money is, unfortunately, or fortunately for, for our case. You mentioned that the set pieces are doing things for the tournament. Um, will you be sending anyone there? I know, no, I don't have that sort of budget. Um, and if anyone's going, it'd be me that would go, but no, I'll send someone else. But no, no, we don't have any, any budget to that sort of level to go to Qatar, but um, we'll be looking and doing things and then watching keenly from, uh, from afar. Yeah, you can watch off tube. That's what happened during the Euros. Uh, certainly, or, or the Ashes a few years ago. But I remember Johnny Northcroft saying, you're not going to turn down a trip to the World Cup. Yes, there are functional problems with the people, as in 2018, who host it. But this is still the event. Have you been to Champions League or Europa League finals yourself? I haven't, no. I've been to a different match. I actually mentioned Graham Potter before. I went to uh, and one of the best Europa League games I went to. was actually with... I went into the Ostersund uh, away contingent at Arsenal when mm-hmm. they won at the Emirates. Um, that was good because again it was that sort of I guess what the Europa League does is that actually there is that still the giant killing aspect of it whereas you don't get that in the Champions League which was pretty good so that was that was excellent um, and I think I mean this year I mean you might find that in the World Cup that there is also that you might get an unlikely winner just because the way that it is and you know relative forms and the fact that it's in a different a different time and you mentioned kind of like the the conditions, but actually I think, you know, I think the conditions probably had more of an impact previously, but now all of sports science and all of this, actually the players will be peaked and, and, and ready to, to play regardless and they'll be kind of ready to play in those conditions, I'm sure. One of the brilliant oversights, and anyone who knows anything about football knows Bora Mutilinovic. This, and there have been books written about USA 94, but the way that he got from a, from not even a standing start, from like a crawling start, from a Mesozoic period start, America to be doing things at their home World Cup, and Alexi Lalas's great value here. He was given time, and there are lots of teams whose, I think South Korea as well, under Hasidink, were just given time to develop. So the team ethos is so important. I mean, it is, it is. I mean, it's something that actually, someone I won't, I won't share his, his identity, but a guy who worked in Qatar um, and I remember talking to him a couple of years ago and saying oh you know maybe Qatar will spring a surprise and he said that he thought that the problem would still be the quality that's there but they, they've kind of gone their own way as well but there are a lot of examples of home nations smaller home nations in this kind of modern era where they're, they're becoming hosts that have done something a little bit different and I've, you know you mentioned South Korea they, they created time for hitting. Um, Japan actually who were co-hosting were, were quite fascinating because again like Philip Trusier who's the manager he was given four years to prepare um, and he created almost kind of a, a graduation that he started that he got like a, a youth World Cup 
side then they went to the Olympics and then they went to the World Cup and he would take players through this journey so they were all kind of ready for the World Cup when it when it happened and actually I think there was a feeling he felt um, that they should have achieved more than they did that time but yeah there's, there's quite a lot of, I mean the, the US is a fascinating one it's probably the one that really stands out because Milutinovic is an eccentric character and very effective with what he did but his impact was huge and they'd managed to find a way, made this advantage and had this camp in California where they brought everyone together and they played a lot of head tennis yep. and he had different ways of judging people like Alexi Lalas. He asked him to, to chop off his hair and, and get rid of his, his big long beard um, kind of 18 months before the tournament. And while Lalas thought it was a kind of saying it was an injustice that this happened, he did it and he proved how much he wanted to be part of that US squad in, in 94. And there were all these different little tests which perhaps by the modern standards, um, perhaps even then, you kind of look at and say, you know, players wouldn't go for this. But um, there, there's a fascinating thing, and I think you, you find in a lot of football, actually, the, the elite-level stuff is great, and there's some good stories there. But actually, the, the quirky things, things that are a little bit different, are actually someone, sometimes the, the smaller the smaller countries and actually having a little bit more freedom to do something a little bit different. Well, and those smaller countries, and my question that I guess you've been asked at some point promoting this book how to win the World Cup, secrets and insights from international footballers, top managers, is would you want to run a bigger team like Brazil or Germany or to grow a nation like Nepal or Montserrat or Anguilla? Stern John is a brilliant talking head, as is Stephen Constantine, but he's, he's better known. But the Stern John material was great about Anguilla. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, you, you mentioned Montserrat and I think Willie Donachy is, is great as well. And actually I did um, did a feature with uh, 442 on, on Montserrat um, earlier this year and I spoke to a lot of their players. And it's quite fascinating how they kind of, this ethos that they've got by knowing each other and again, that continuity really helps in the international game. And these guys, you know, Montserrat with a lot of players that were non-league footballers or lower league footballers in England. And they're, you know, going and producing really good results against sides out in in the Caribbean. And it's interesting that you can see that there is a development path. I mean, I do think there is a glass ceiling to how far you can go with a smaller nation. Um, and I think Stephen Constantine kind of said that in, in the book as well. So there's only so far that you can go, but you are... The job is quite different. I think for, for Stephen, he also spoke about how being... Um, a coach of a Nepal, you are literally coaching the players to be better players. Whereas you go to a big country, I think Carlos Alberto Pereira talks about um, Brazil and actually how he's not going to be able to, I mean, the side that he won the World Cup with in 94, he wasn't going to make Romario a better player, but he could get Romario to play in a system that was going to win the World Cup, um, which funnily, I mean, you mentioned Gareth Southgate earlier, it was a pragmatic approach. Pereira was considered to be too defensive for that Brazilian side and they won the World Cup for the first time in 20-odd years. So, um, actually, you know, it it comes down to it that sometimes, you know, you need to find what's going to serve well for your country and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach, whether you're a small country or a big country. Um, I think you need to find out what's right for your players and that nation at the time and, and kind of put a plan into place through that way. I had a look at Brazil's squad um, because Richarlison is playing up front with Rafinha and it must be Vinicius um, or Vinicius because he's Portuguese. Um, Neymar's playing central midfield for Brazil in a 4-3-3. Yeah, and I mean, this is it, right? This this is where you talk about 
balance and, and international football is a little bit like this because sometimes there have to be square pegs in round holes and this is where actually you do find that nations do tend to become a little bit more pragmatic because of that because it's not like the club game where if you've got a problem in central midfield you know you'll fight you'll go and sign a central midfielder or if you've got too many you know riches in one place you'd find a, a solution in a different a different sense and you perhaps cash in on one and you know use Neymar in a more natural position so yeah it's it's a fascinating one I think this is why there is that sort of authenticity that remains in international football that has perhaps been lost a little bit in the club game and, and this is kind of one of those examples I think yeah, I was I was just very interested. I'd not noticed that because I've taken my eye off Neymar. Someone mentioned a few months ago. I think it was Jim Keoghan, uh, whose books you may know. I'll ask you about your football library shortly. But Jim said Neymar's twenty nine. He's not a child anymore. He is a, a man. He, of course, is one of those players. I don't want to get into the politics because it'll just be going around in circles, and that's not what we're here to promote. Because how to win the World Cup is about what happens on the pitch. Um, but. I think the Qataris have been very interesting because they've got Messi, they've got Neymar, they've got Mbappe, all playing for Paris Saint-Germain. So who, they've spread bet. Whoever wins, they can parade, whether it's France, Brazil or Argentina. And they don't have any Englishman. Maybe that's why they wanted Marcus Rashford. Maybe, maybe. But then I guess, you know, is Marcus Rashford going to go to the World Cup? You know, there's no guarantee that any of those three nations that you mentioned are going to win the World Cup I really do think it's pretty open World Cup I mean that could mean you can go either one of two ways I guess if it's a really open World Cup it could be really exciting but then you know I guess people look back on 2002 was one of those that where there was no real kind of standout country in Brazil who'd actually struggled to get to the World Cup in the first place actually went and won it but there was sort of like all these shocks and then it almost didn't feel like it it didn't culminate in quite the same way as other tournaments in the sense that actually it was quite a poor Germany side that managed to get to the final. And, you know, all the great stories of like Turkey and South Korea getting to the semis as well, that that perhaps didn't, it didn't have that sort of blockbuster effect that, that other World Cups have done. But, you know, I, th- I think there, there's obviously some marketing behind it with, with the Qataris, but yeah, like there's, there's only so much that, that can be done and, and can be controlled in, in a, a tournament like this, I think. Yeah. Just stick an armband on and the world will be healed. I think Eric Cantona has been brilliant value. I don't know if you read his chat with Adam Crafton in that yes, other website. Yes, that you... uh, yeah, no, it was a really good interview. I did really enjoy that. But yeah, Eric Cantona is always, uh, always worth a quote or two, isn't he? Oh, he's brilliant. Um, it's just a shame that... Well, Claude Bolly has written this book about my mate Eric and me, uh, which is out in paperback in January and hopefully will drive some sales but Eric was one of my first football heroes because I grew up I remember Eric in the old house Eric Cantona's kung fu kick led the news bulletin I don't know how old you were at that time beginning of 95 yeah I think it was a little bit before when I got into got into football actually so I was um 96 was my time mm-hmm. I, I kind of credit I was I was kind of getting into it but then yeah Euro 96 was where it really kind of captured me so yeah it's it's one of those weird things, you know, when you kind of have a really distorted view that anything that happened, even if it was like a year before you kind of got into football, <laughs> as a kid, it feels like it was uh, a different age almost. Um, and you're kind of like, yeah, 95, all these things happened. But yeah, it, it was a little bit before my time. But obviously, Cantona was uh, was doing doing the rounds in the mid-90s and obviously was, was a, a, you know, one of those first big stars that I remember kind of seeing as well. I know someone who knows Frank Skinner very well. And all I'll say 
because Sarah was very uh, tight-lipped about it. But this will go out in the middle of October. We don't know when there will be a new version of Three Lions, but I think even though Dave Baddiel said, yeah, we're retiring it, I think that was a bluff. Because if you're not going to make money through a Christmas version of Three Lions in this World Cup year, you're not a good businessman. So uh, the men haven't brought it home. The women have. How impressed have you been with Serena Wiegmann as a manager? I mean, actually, it's quite interesting. So some of the things that she did, and I mean, obviously, this book is concentrated on the, the men's World Cup. But actually... A lot of that stuff, I would say, you know, vast, vast majority applies to the, the women's game as well. And, and actually, you look at some of the things that she did to kind of inspire that success in the summer. And some of the, the building blocks that she put in place were exactly the ones that you hear from the, 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 the male manager, as you'd expect. And yeah, she's been she's been brilliant. And I think hopefully she'll continue to... To, to do great things with with uh, the English national side because I think the exposure that it's brought is is brilliant and you know everyone was talking about the women's game and I think the more that that happens the better especially if they're going to win tournaments and the men aren't so we can get <laughs> get behind some Quite success right. somewhere yes someone made the joke yesterday I can't remember who it was it's good watching the men try I think it was Greg James actually <laughs> good watching all the men run around and try in front of Leah Williamson uh, unfortunately America are going to dominate this World Cup Australia have the home advantage uh, New Zealand aren't bad either but it's it's America's to lose because they're fantastic uh, who are the minnows in this World Cup who are the 32nd team at this World Cup <laughs> I mean it's quite strange one actually because there aren't really you normally get quite a few debutants or smaller nations, but there's not really... I mean, it's Qatar almost, because there aren't really many countries in there that you kind of say, well, there's not an Iceland, there's not there's not a Togo that there have been in previous years, but, there, you know, there's no no one really like that apart from, from Qatar, and it's quite a strange one. I mean, I guess that we're going to go to a, a bloated World Cup next time out, and I think that's where you're going to kind of get some, some real minnows in there, but you'd almost kind of stretch to, to, to Wales as well. Um, you know, first first World Cup since the fifties. So, yeah, I mean that's kind of kind of where you are. But yeah, there's there's kind of a, one thing that this World Cup does lack are are true kind of debutants and a, or a Trinidad and Tobago or somebody like that to really kind of get behind. Yeah, is the England Wales is the third game of the group, so that's going to be the deciding game. Yeah, I mean, um, as as an Englishman, you'd kind of hope that they'd have got through that. And I know I'm I quite I'm perhaps not the right thing to say but I quite like Wales um, and I wanted you know one Wales to do well too so if the two nations can go through England and Wales that'd be great and actually you know if England can progress and, and qualify beforehand or you know Wales can do that either way you know so either kind side can go through that'd be great but then I guess you know, it's a spectacle isn't it so if there's something on the line and they're both kind of got a chance then that's that's there but as, as an Englishman it strikes the fear of God into me that that sort of thing can happen yeah, saw how close it was in the Euros when they, they played with each other and that was quite you know, that really could have gone either way. Um, I don't know who England won that day, but um could have been very different, I think, if they played the match again at the time. It's different now because the president of the English Football Association is the Prince of Wales. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. So I don't know if, if um, the heir to the British throne and the Commonwealth throne is going to, to say anything. And not, and full stop, this is new paragraph, new page of A4, West Germany versus East Germany. Uh, in 1974, this is, it's incredible to know that East Germany beat West Germany, who went on to win the World Cup. What is your theory on Helmut Schoen in 74? 
Well, I mean, this is it, right? So when I was talking about England and Wales, this is the whole idea here that if England had progressed and Wales needed a victory and, and beat England, and actually England progressed her anyway, it's a, a kick up the backside almost. And it goes, it goes back to that sort of adversity thing that, that losing can actually be a positive um, and kind of say, right, you know, you might have got through here, but that's, you know, it's not great. And I guess, you know, West West Germany were the same. They qualified and East Germany beat them to, to, to join them as well and actually got a harder, harder draw out of it. But it was the sort of kick up the backside, both to Schoen himself um, as a native East German, but also for the team to kind of change and regroup and, and and kind of play the part there. And I know we've spoke to Barry Davis in the book and he kind of said, you know, all the rumours around Schoen and, you know, there's all this talk about him kind of having a bit of a breakdown and Franz Beckenbauer basically picking up Schoen and the squad and just kind of saying, right, this is how we're going to do it. And Beckenbauer taking a lot of credit for it. Um, now Barry Davis, who was obviously knew the characters and was involved at, at the time, um, he said he doesn't believe that was quite the case. He thought that Schoen was um, a lot savvier than perhaps the, the myth uh, will tell you. And he perhaps knew how to use Beckenbauer and he'd kind of spoken to a lot of these senior players and worked out a way that was going to work. Um, and that, there, there is a lot of that, you know, there's there quite a lot of... Um, uh, approaches quite a lot of the, the nations work with those senior players so it's not unusual for a senior player or a captain to have a really key role in the World Cup but certainly look, Schoen had so much experience and while it was probably quite a chastening defeat for him you know it, it's unrealistic to suggest that he didn't have any sort of impact on, on kind of getting them to, to, to win Stories grow arms and legs, and uh, you know one of the famous stories is about Cameroon in, in 1990, and how uh, the the Russian manager Valery Nepanyashi, you know, he almost wasn't in charge because the, the claim was that his translator, who was also his chauffeur, was translating differently to tell them to do, you know, the the tactics of where he was, and he was the the, the mastermind behind it. But actually, speaking to people for this book, um, some of the players, you know, that really wasn't true but the myth doesn't stop the myth growing um and i think that's probably the same a little bit with shun that you know there's obviously a little bit of truth in it but I, I i'm sure that he was still still quite a key a key man well there is no myth thank you for that there is no myth in the fact that your translators sophia dan and Raffaella, are huge helps and they get the assist they have the goal involvement uh, nonsense for how to win the World Cup secrets and insights from international football's top managers and there are a lot of managers uh, including Luis Felipe Scolari, Carlos Alberto Pereira, um, Mick McCarthy that was great I loved that um, the, the, the stuff on uh, the Republic of Ireland in 86 and 1994 um, you also talked to Paddy Barkley, Rafa Honigstein and Graham Hunter so three A-list journalists and uh the man who um, has on our screens for Sky Sports, Jamie Carragher, who has parlayed his one-club playing career into a brilliant um, punditry role. There are too many pundits, aren't there? Far too many. I mean, I think it feels like we're in a bit of a transition of, of pundits, aren't there? There's kind of like the old guards, obviously... Now, the other week, there was all this kind of thing, Mark, Mark Lawrenson saying he'd been marginalised um, for it. But there does feel to be a bit of a, a, a change. But then you've got 
the likes of Sky Sports, it's the 24-hour channel Sky Sports News and um, TalkSport the same and you kind of need people who are going to be talking heads and some are going to be good, some aren't going to be quite so good but I guess the idea, like anything, pundits are a little bit like journalists in a sense, so you've got to be able to write something and back it up that's going to get a reaction, that's kind of what the, the, the job is now, especially kind of in the social media age, like engagement is king. Well, that is why I have to say that the setpieces.com is not a place... Uh, for bants or conjecture it's well backed up there is a brilliant piece on there by Chris Evans uh, about Gareth Southgate's pragmatism and another asking where managers should only stay at clubs for three years this is the Bella Gutman rule Um, and you do say Pep Guardiola underachieved in his fourth season it was a pandemic give the bold fraud a break I mean, it's just quite interesting, but I guess it's transitions, really. And I think, I mean, the difficulty with that piece is that you always kind of look for patterns within it. But there's, there certainly is a, a pattern with Guardiola that, that did stand out. But um, I guess the talent is to know when to, you know, Alex Ferguson was the king of this, that he knew when to let players go um, at the right time and when to refresh things. And I think that's the real talent of the kind of long-standing manager because while the, the three-year cycle didn't quite work the same with Jurgen Klopp but you can kind of see that with Liverpool as well that there's cycles and I think it's just the nature of football but perhaps life in general that you know you always need to be refreshing and, and, and doing something you can't just be relying on doing the same thing with the same people all the time so um, yeah it's quite quite an interesting one and I think there is there is some method behind kind of what Bella Goodman said. Is The Athletic now three years old? Um, 2019, I think they started in the UK. So they're going through the yeah. the fourth season. So let's hope that during a World Cup they can um, make an impact. Adam Leventhal has obviously got a template for a Watford sacking piece. And uh, I haven't read his piece as it stands, but yeah, Watford are not doing magnificently uh, at the moment. But then what is magnificent for a club like Watford? Who is your team, by the way? Um, I'm actually an Eaton Borough fan. That's where I'm originally wow. from. Uh, they, uh, that's, it was always a choice when I was growing up that you kind of go and watch Coventry, where they're the closest big club, but they're not finished in the top half of the league for about 30 years. Or, you know, Aston Villa or something like that. But yeah, Nuneaton was my club because I could go and, I could go and watch them and they were in the conference at the time when I was first started going. Um, and yeah, it was great. You'd go with your friends, home and away. Don't go and see them as, as often as I, I used to. I did go last night. It, it, it's good, and I think it kind of gives you a different perspective on football as well to kind of be, you know, the the real side of elite side, but also kind of seeing what happens at a lower level. And it probably leads into why I'm, I'm quite, as much as all the, the top managers in this book are really good, we wanted to represent kind of like the smaller nations and that journey for them to try to get to work up as well. So, yeah, I think it's probably, you, you can see that sort of grounding in the work that I do across various things. Oh, gosh, I will bear that in mind. And I'd love to read a deep dive into Nuneaton Borough. Are you excited or perturbed about what's going on at Wrexham? They're buying their way out of non-league. I mean, it's that, a good story. That's the done thing. That's what people want. We saw that, we tried to saw that with uh, Glenn Tamplin and Villaricky. It didn't work. Yeah, I mean, look, it isn't football about stories. Everyone always says when they're going up against a side like that, they don't want to, you know, it's not fair. But actually, it adds a little bit of 
bite to it. I mean, I did an interview with with Neil Ardley. He's like the Solly Hill manager recently, and obviously Solly Hill are a very different side, um, and they were right up at the top with with Stockport and Wrexham last year in the conference. And um, or sorry, the, the the National League as it is now. No, it's still um, the conference. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're, they were right at the top there, and they kind of were. I guess they had a little bit more authenticity about them. But then you kind of compare them to others in the. West Midlands, and they're considered to be the ones who splashed the cash. So it's all it's all relative. Um, and you know what? I kind of think that it's all about storylines. And while you get kind of some negative storylines, you look at like the nature of like Oldham. Um, that's what you want. If people weren't kind of going, you know, some clubs are going upwards, some clubs are going backwards. You get clubs. You look at the Premier League, and you've got the likes of Brentford, who've got their brilliant story. Fantastic to see them doing really well there. And I think this is what you need. You need people with different approaches, whether that's chucking the cash at it or kind of trying to find a different way to get an edge. And, and Dorking are another one in the National League who, who kind of have, have done that as well and have kind of come up with a different route to um, to success. So I, I think it's good. I think we're richer for a variety of, of things going on. And you know what? Film stars taking over Wrexham and splashing the cash. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it because I think that's... It's just something a little bit different. It's something to chat about. You know, if... if no one had done that, you wouldn't be asking me that question now. So it's clearly worthwhile. Correct. Well, Salford City, don't forget, the class of 92 went in there, but Salford seems to have, again, hit their ceiling. I mean, they've got big funders and people do want to play for Salford. Um, but I hope none eaten climb back into the Football League or at least the conference. Because um, they were a Football League club, weren't they? They were. No, no, they came very close. Came second a couple of times. Oh, but they um, didn't get elected. Okay. my time. They fell away to doing. I think it was David Pleat was around at the time. He was manager, and they came close, close then. But yeah, they're always traditionally one of the big non-league clubs. But the, you know, like everything, the non-league landscape has changed a, a lot, and they've kind of fallen back a bit and struggled to stay up in the Southern Premier League last year. Although they're mm-hmm. the second, second there now, and they've kind of approached it in a bit of a different way. But actually, I mean, you look at non-league and the, the way teams play. You know that everyone's trying to play football, and that's incredible to be honest I mean look, there are still relative to, to where they were before but there's not as much direct play with a lot of clubs as there used to be and everyone's trying to do it in the, the right way and it's quite fascinating to see how that development from obviously what's happened and Pep Guardiola always takes the credit for it of, of coming over to his country too but you see it kind of spreading all the way down to the seventh tier and you know I think it's, it's great and I, I, I kind of like those those cycles but I think that you'll see clubs Clubs almost kind of going back to that old school approach because they'll find a way to actually be better than that and they'll find a more effective way of doing it. It's just all in cycles, isn't it? And I think that's, um, yeah, it's quite quite interesting to see that and how it, it impacts people down the levels. So obviously, yeah, I and Ian kind of make a, uh, make a move back back towards, certainly into the... The, the conference north as it was so um, yeah hopefully fingers crossed but we'll we'll see and who knows maybe a manager who starts off in non-league or Ostersund and Team Bath as Graham Potter did uh, could win the World Cup Secrets and Insights from International Football's Top Managers is Chris Evans' book it's out now it's very timely uh, we have half a minute left what's your favourite football book? I, I mean it's difficult I'm a big fan of Michael Calvin's um, and I think actually Living on a Volcano, perhaps, is the one that, that nicks it for me. Again, I mean, I guess I'm quite into football managers, so that was brilliant for that, that reason. So, um, yeah, I think that was quite a fascinating kind of insight into what they what, what they kind of go through in the club game. And, uh, yeah, we, we spied a gap where there's 
there's not perhaps that same investigation gone into international management. All the styles are a little bit different to this book to to his. Um, yeah, hopefully it can. If it was a, even a little bit as good as his, then I'd be be delighted. I think Robert Page should get this. Former Watford captain Rob Page, who's the Wales manager, I think he would love this book, and maybe he will be on the cover of the paperback along with uh, Jackie Charlton, Jogi Lowe, Gareth Southgate, Didier Deschamps, Big Phil Scolari, Alf Ramsey, and El Diez. Diego Maradona, Chris Evans, thank you very, very much. Uh, you better get off and edit thesetpieces.com. Just like the library! Just like the library!